Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest who has redefined what it means to bring filth, glamour, and horror to the performance stage. On the most recent season of Dragula, she survived blood-spewing, hair-chomping madness and rose up to be crowned America's newest drag supermonster. Please welcome to the show, Bitch Puddin'. Hi, everybody. Oh my god, I'm so excited you're here. I'm excited that you're popping my cherry. I was a virgin up until this very moment when it came to podcasts. Really? This is your first podcast? Very first one. I'm so excited to be the one. Oh my god. Uh, and as we were talking before the show, it is Puddin' I-N, not I-N-G. Not I-N-G, just I-N. Now, is that, I have to ask, in reference to the Miss Harley Quinn, or do you want to keep that a secret? I mean, yeah, I like Puddin'. You know, I just think it's more like Southern and Ratchet than just Pudding. Gotcha. You know, it's just like pudding. It's more endearing. And you are from the South. I am from the South. Which we'll dig into, but we might as well kick the show off now that we're here and all cozy and warm like a, a bowl of pudding. Pudding shouldn't be warm, actually. Or it could be. It could be. Spunk is warm. True, which we're going <laughs> to... <laughs> all right, well, let's kick things off the same way we start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that question however you want. What's your access point? Why do you think it appeals to people? What's the general draw of the genre but why horror horror for me is like blood and like red and just the visceral color of it all you know like i just love the color red it's like the color of passions the color we bleed it's like something that's like i'm a very passionate person so i I like horror because it's almost like the baroqueness of life it's like it's the apex of what's happening and like in the scene or whatever is going on when horror is attached to something so that's why i really do love horror and when did you first find yourself being drawn to the genre? Ooh. I would say with video games, honestly. Interesting. Yeah, I'm a video game girl. Like I, I would I would play Resident I would watch my, my friend like, oh I got Resident Evil, you gotta come over, this shit's crazy. And I would go over and we'd watch it and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, just the simple nuances of, like, opening the door, the zombie, like, the jump scares, all that shit. Like, the sound design, Mm -hmm. that's where, like, I think horror, for me, like, really resonates is within sound. Because, like, it's just, like, the tone you can set with a simple cue to really redefine what happened in the moment before. It's interesting, too, because of all the guests we've had on, filmmakers, writers, and everything, no one's really brought up sound design and horror, but I think you're absolutely correct in the way that sometimes silence builds dread or sometimes that little bit of music or that creak. And we've all seen those videos on YouTube where some clever person just re-orchestrates the sound a little bit. Mm -hmm. And suddenly a scene from The Shining that's so horrifying sounds like a romantic comedy. It's fucking hilarious now. It's just like a complete joke. It's a quintessential part of like doing horror. I got started doing um, theater like in college and I was built into it doing sound design. And um, I did a show called Wait Until Dark. And I was just always like, I, when I got casted to do it, I like did sound design for like a random ass like club show. And they were like, oh, come do the sound design for the main stage. I was like, okay, I have no clue what the fuck I'm doing, but work. <laughs> um, and like, I just kept realizing you could really build moments and really take the audience there with them just walking into the room. Like the pre-show music is so important. Because you're taking them and you're putting them into a different place just with sound alone. I think oh, that's so interesting, especially with the pre-show music, because it's something when we all go to live shows, we 
know is going on, mm-hmm. but we don't always recognize how it can set the mood for what we're about to see. Right. I think that sometimes when you, people go to concerts, they just think it's like the XM radio, but I guarantee most of the times it's the playlist of whatever artists we are about to see, about to see or yeah. if it's like a related to the label or something like that. It's always like a purpose, I think. And I think the artists or directors or something really take notice of that and utilize it, it works out for a better show because you're just transforming them into the space. So I'm interested because you're, I think, the first guest I've ever had on that was drawn into horror by video games. You mentioned Resident Evil, which, of course, is a phenomenon. I am not much of a gamer, but I have to say that I've always been deeply fascinated by the Resident Evil movies. Mm. As someone who likes the game, what's your take on the films? I fucking love it because it's just candy. You know what I mean? It's not an exact representation of what the games are. And I think it's almost successful in that right that it didn't try to be the game. It tried to be like... Just, it kind of took the cool moments from the game right. and then like, repurpleized them in this like video game vixen, like hyper, like fuck. It, she's just always hot. She is. She's she's like sickening. She has a shotgun. She's doing a backflip in a motorbike and is killing zombies. Like, fuck, that gets my dick hard. So like, I love that <laughs> shit. What I love about Mila Jovovich is that you just believe that she's kicking all of this ass. One. And two, the thing that's really fascinating to me about the Resident Evil movies that I glommed onto early on is it seems like each one is sort of its own genre. And by that, I mean, like, the first one's like, we're in the house, and it's kind of a haunted house movie with zombies in a hidden lab. But then the second one's like, fucking die hard, where they're like, yeah. and this was like, they're blowing shit up. <laughs> and they're just like, the whole city, like, scaling skyscrapers, jumping out of helicopters. And then the third one's like, in the desert after the apocalypse, it's all Mad Max, there's a prison movie. It's just wildness. It's just, it's funny. It's so funny because that's an almost an American franchise. Yeah. And Resident Evil, the game was like Japanese video game designers kind of mocking or trying to do their own version of what American like action movies were. That's interesting. So it's kind of now they're like taking it back off of an inspiration. So it's kind of really interesting to see how it like panned out that way. The one thing that I do see the Japanese influence of the games on the movie is, and I, you know, I'm sure there's a listener who will correct me if I'm wrong on this. But what I think is interesting, after the first one, and we've established the world of this virus and the Umbrella Corporation, uh, each subsequent movie has, like, a monster. That's usually, like, some sort of evolved monster. And, like, I remember when, whatever the second one is, I think it might be uh, Extinction or Apocalypse. It's the diehard one. (laughs) Uh, But, like, her boyfriend becomes, like, a Power Rangers villain by the end. It's, like, this mashed potato monster. Oh, it's the nemesis. He becomes the nemesis, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And he's actually, like, the main character in the third game. Like, that whole shit. We're like, fuck, just those characters, those monsters, like how they evolve with like a virus done by like a pharmaceutical corporation. Which like I, that's like with Walmart, I could totally see Walmart doing that. I, like, you know, like in 10 years from now, if shit hit the fan and Walmart was behind it, I'd be like, fucking shit. Well, there was a joke in one of the uh, Alien movies that was edited out. I think it was Alien Resurrection, where it was implied that the evil corporation in Alien, which is akin to like the Umbrella Corporation, Wayland yutani is the name of the corporation in the Alien films. It was implied in Alien Resurrection that Walmart bought them at the at some point. Yeah, but they they became absorbed by a bigger, eviler corporation, according to the universe. Uh, so, I don't know. Maybe Wally was onto something. <laughs> Or maybe they're on to something still. Oh, my God. Like, shit. So from discovering horror in video games, did that encourage you to kind of, like, go out and start looking for more things in this realm of spookiness? It just... I was attached... I was attracted to, like, the like the 
untangible, like the intangible part of it. Like right. it, it was like such a disconnection of what everyday life was. Cause I was like raised in a military family. So I moved around every two years, whatever. So like video games was kind of like my coping mechanism because I would go to school and I would always be the new kid and I'd make friends with the girls easier and the boys would be like pissed off at me because I was like talking to the girls or whatever. And I'd got, I was just easy to pick on. I had feminine voice. I like liked certain things, which is not normal. Um, So I would go home and like play video games and disappear into these worlds. So I just loved how like it was a disconnection of what everyday life was. I really like you saying disappearing into these worlds because I think for a lot of gamers that is the draw you get to escape the world around you you get to become somebody else right and I mean I guess there is that to an extent with watching cinema and films and like you know I myself being drawn into horror movies growing up because I liked the escapism of it even recognizing that in that escapism that horror sometimes could represent something that was very real too but I think that you, what I think is interesting is the fact that you liked the escapism and becoming someone else, becoming part of another world. And then, in a, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy for drawing this parallel, but it's sort of like, isn't that also what drag is? That's how I got into drag. All right. Well, so tell me about I, that. Because like, I really was like, well, I got into drag doing like a charity show at SCADS, Savannah College of Art and Design, when I was studying school. Um, originally started as an art history major because I was like really attracted to like, I don't know, like the Baroque period, that heightenism of like the sculpture, the painting, the blood, the Caravaggio, genius. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I slowly got into theater doing sound design because I was like picked up by the club. And then I got challenged to do a charity show. And when I did the charity show, we sold out within a week and we raised money for um, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. And it was like a huge hit. And like when we came up with the characters, everybody was like, well, like, I'm going to be Giselle. I'm going to be Monica. I'm going to be this. And I was like, I want to be the girl that got fucked by the lacrosse team and then shut up to work. <laughs> like, I want to be trash. I want to be that bitch. I don't want to be something perfect and pristine. I want to be something like filthy and gross and disgusting, like a prostitute, like a 80s prostitute meth whore. Sign me the fuck up. And that was the first time you did drag. That's the first time I did drag. And that's like, I was trying to think of the most ratchet name I could think of. And I thought, bitch pudding, done. Like, that's it. All right. And uh, explain to listeners <laughs> who maybe are not as in tune with, uh, let's say underground colloquialism, what bitch pudding is. (laughs) Bitch pudding from the urban dictionary term is um, after a woman has been fucked by a sequential amount of men, it's the secretion that comes out of her vagina. But if you're asking if it's from a certain TV show, then yes, she is there too. (laughs) (laughs) I... (laughs) <laughs> just, you know, just we're, we aim to educate the audiences here on Dead for Filth. All right. So I think that's a really interesting start to doing drag. I like that uh, because of what you do in in your performances now and there's a theatricality to it and that escapism into character. I like that your character began because of a theatrical production. Right. And it's interesting, the the queens that I know who kind of skew into this world, like Peaches Christ's first time in drag was in a movie. She hadn't done drag before she was in a movie. (laughs) So it's like, but then it like starts something. Yeah. So I do want to go back a little bit because, you know, we talked about your engagement in theater, in sound design, studying art history. Uh, So as a kid, you're playing video games. When did you become interested in the world of performance and theater? Because I imagine that happened first, obviously, before 
bitch pudding. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so I was moving around a lot. Hated life because like I didn't have like a constant group of friends. So video games were a place where I could like disappear and have like my own friends in the video games. The whole shit. Okay, so when I discovered theater, I, I it was something taboo because I was not okay with being gay. It took me forever to accept that. I didn't get into theater actually till college. Until then, I was like debate team. I was captain of the debate team. So I was able to like talk and kind of have that theatric ability and that was kind of like on stage performing. Uh-huh. Um, I had a small taste of it when I was in Boy Scouts. We had to do like a skit and I made like a like it, that was like my first taste and I didn't go back into it until college and because um, I didn't let myself try it because I was like that's gay. I'm going to get judged. I'm already judged in 80 other fucking things. I don't want to add that to the list. Right. So finally when I was able to do it that's like when I was able to actually like do theater was college. And I actually, my first role was playing um, a lesbian who happened to look like Justin Bieber called Justine Bieber in a 48-hour play <laughs> festival. Because I had the Biebs haircut when I was like, in college. I was like the tech hat. Um, so that's how I got into theater. Uh, when it came back into like later on when I transferred to SCAD and I started doing drag, um, that was the first reaction I ever got from professors or you know, my peers that like, you should do this. And I was like, you fucking kidding me? Mashing my mouth out to fucking words and like and high heels and shit. That's a career. And they were like, sure, why not? So it was kind of something I like always like kept in my back pocket. And I was like, I'll stop if the doors stop opening. Right. And lo and behold, look where I'm at now. Like the doors just kept on fucking opening. But your intent, it seems, with theater, based on what you were saying about getting into sound design and the art history, was were you even though you liked the performance, initially thinking that your aim was going to be more in a backstage sort of role? I always would take, so that's the thing, until I did the drag show, mm-hmm. um, I would always like not be casted in shit because necessarily I was not like the most straight looking guy or like there wasn't like necessarily a role. And I kind of got fed up with the department because I was like, fuck it, like, you know, I'm gonna, I want my own moment. So like when I did drag, it was like my outlet to do it. But until that, I would always take the side shit. So, like, if I wasn't involved on stage, I was definitely doing sound design, assistant managing. I just always thought, like, if you're in the room, you were learning about the craft. And that's what you were there for college to do. Right. So I would always, like, be in rehearsals and tech. And my favorite part about theater is tech. My favorite part about theater is tech. Because I was mostly sound design. That's where most of my, like, um, credentials are in. But um, it's just the one moment with tech is, like, it's the only time in the whole production every creator is in the room at one time. Oh, that's interesting. It's like the sound designer, the lighting designer, all the actors, the director, the assistant stage manager. It's the only time. It's a bitch. And like, it's so annoying because you're putting all the pieces together to present it flawlessly. And that's where you make all of the flaws. But that is like my absolute favorite part about theater is tech. But then you create this character and it pivots (laughs) in a whole other world. So talk to me a little bit about that. You create bitch pudding for this show specifically Mm -hmm. and obviously there was a spark that ignited there because like many performers will do a one-off character for a show that Mm. though outrageous it's like okay i did this yeah what from that moment made you say oh i gotta keep this bitch alive (laughs) literally (laughs) she's good she's good well like i was like doing improv and uh like I, i kept doing improv after that and 
one of my friends came to see a show and he was like, oh my God, you know, like, cause I redid bitch, but I wasn't in drag. I right. brought her back for a scene and like everybody knew about it. So it was like funny. And your name was always bitch pudding from the beginning. Yeah, it was That's... always bitch. I only had one name. Um, it's like, you know, when you start out with an RPG in a video game, you like think forever about what your main character is going to be. Like, and you don't really get to go back. I mean, I'm ancient. So the last time I got to pick a name for a character in an RPG was probably like on Secret of Mana for Super Nintendo. That's a fucking great game. But it was like, a lot of our listeners were like, what's that? I wasn't (laughs) born yet. Secret Man is amazing. It's probably available on like Nintendo Switch, like shit. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I used to play all of the Square games, like Final Fantasy III, Chrono Trigger, Secret of Mana, and then the world moved on. (laughs) (laughs) To 3D. Um... So I, I was doing improv, I was doing all that, but then someone came out to the show and was just like, oh my God, like, you know, you should join the House of Gunt. And I was like, what's the House of Gunt? And it was like, oh, they, they did this like crazy punk rock fucking drag show in their living room. They're all gender fuck as shit and they're all SCAD students. Bitch should totally be a part of that. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so I, uh, they brought down, um, like a month later, they brought down the legendary children from Atlanta. So that was like Eva Destruction, Violet Chachki, um, Brigitte Bidet, Crying Callie, uh, Livonia Alberton, who I want on season three so bad. Um, they brought all these like iconic, like Atlanta performers down and they kind of did like a joint show. So it was like the ratchet ass, like fucking gender fuck drag with these pristine, you know, East Atlanta Queens. And I watched that show and I was like, fuck, that's what drag could be? Shit, like I can take bitch into wherever I want. Like Lavonia, for example, she did like this crazy number with Snow White. And it was like an acid trip. And she was a bearded, like long haired teal queen. And she was like eating the apples and passing out apples. And like fucking, you were like on acid when you were watching it. And I was like, you can completely transform the whole room right. with one number. And that really got my like brain jarring. So like I slowly but surely joined the House of Gunt. I have an iconic moment where I was only in a thong and a bra. Because I always had, like, a really hot body then. I was like, I'm just going to be a body bitch. Like, whatever. Shitty blonde hair, mug, complete shit. And I just, like, my dick just came out throughout the number. (laughs) There's this shirt my friend made for his, like, fiber thesis, Toyota Mitsubishi from the House of Gun. And it's just like, girl, want to hang? And it's just, like, my balls completely on the side (laughs) of the panty. (laughs) Wait, so they got a photo of it and put it on a shirt? I mean, it's couture. It's couture. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Atlanta drag scene, because before the show started, you were telling me how you really just think that Atlanta is such a prolific place for drag artists. It fucking is, man. Okay, so like, first off, RuPaul started there. Is that that's yeah, true? RuPaul started in Atlanta. Um, he was doing ratchet ass drag in Kroger rollerblading. So like, you the know, like, yeah, store? yeah, the okay. grocery store, Kroger, the grocery store. For those on the West Coast, it's basically Ralph's because everything you buy in there is Kroger. Right. Um, so, yeah. But, like, it's such a mecca of drag. Like, before before RuPaul's Drag Race, there was this thing called, like, pageants, you know? And that was a mecca of, like, drag was Atlanta drag because of the right. pageants. They would always win. They would go in and fucking win. And... Um, that's where, like, the House of Brooks come from, like, Nicole Page Brooks and all those, like, prestigious girls. But when I first moved there, I saw, like, a show with, like, Violet Chachki, Celeste Holmes, Edie Cheeseburger, and it was the other show. The show was famously fired for, like, on episode one of Dragula, where they were like, talking about, like, ooh, girl, like, you were fired? And I was like, yes, I was fired from a show. It was that show. And that's the first show I ever saw in Atlanta. And it really 
I didn't know what a gem it was until like maybe I moved or went to a different city. Right. And I was like, damn, Elena has some really fucking great drag. And it has great drag audiences, mm-hmm. too, because I've traveled a bit with drag queen friends to different cities and venues. And, you know, L.A., of course, is a huge show business city. And we were talking about that, like L.A. and New York, they see a lot. Mm-hmm. So even if the audience truly appreciates it, audiences here tend to be more measured in yeah. a way. Whereas if you go to somewhere like Atlanta or Boston or some of these cities like audiences or Pittsburgh, people get wild. They get fucking buck over shit. Like you could just do a song that, you know, you don't think nobody knows. And like half the audience is like, fuck, yes, this is my favorite song. Here's money. And you're like, this, <laughs> I get paid for this. Hell yeah. I, I just love the aspect about drag because it's like you perform the songs you get off to in the shower. Right. You know, it's just like that one song. You're like, I can belt my heart out to this. And like, you think nobody knows it like you do. And then you perform it and like the whole front audience is right there with you. Yeah. And that magnetic energy is what I goddamn live for. You know, I and maybe you don't know the answer to this. It's more like a wider question because because Atlanta is so prolific and has such a strong drag community. I'm sort of curious. Why do you think Atlanta? Because when you think sort of like liberal arts, the South isn't the first place you think of. But right. here we have a complete counter argument mm-hmm. to that. Yeah. Um, well, uh, being Atlanta's like almost a mecca of the South because it's like one of the biggest it's like the biggest city unless you go to Texas or a little bit north to like D.C. maybe mm-hmm. um, it draws out that whole Southeast pull. Right. It pulls from everybody in like Alabama who has parents who fucking hate them and they leave home at 16 right. and they get a shitty job at Starbucks and try to make it in the city. Like, you know, it's just that's where you go because, you know, there's going to be a more collection of queers there. And I feel like because of their backgrounds of um, how they were raised and how, like, you know, you have to fight to survive that if it's more of like a rebellion in the sense of like, yeah, no, like, I'm fucking gay dad. I'm going to be a fucking queen. Right. Or not only I'm gay, like, not only I'm queer ma- dad, I'm like, I'm a woman. You know what I mean? Like, you know, that whole concept of like living your own truth underneath like crazy circumstances. Right. And I think that rebellion really kind of surfaced and was a home was Burkhart, uh, not Burkhart's um, backstreet. Backstreet in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a famous venue. It's now closed, but it's open 24 hours a day. You could go to any kind of room and have like some poom poom if you wanted, or you could, <laughs> or you could see like a really great drag show. Like Charlie Brown's Cabaret is a legendary show there that, you know, started like girls like um, Shauna Brooks, who started the House of Brooks, uh, a girl named Raven, who would, um, she did fire on stage, like, before any, but, like, she would, like, twirl fire, like, a legit-ass Vegas girl who would twirl fire, and, like, she caught the stage on fire a couple times, no lie. Well, those are the kind of shows I like to be at. Yeah, to be like, it would just be, like, a solid-ass goddamn show, and it just, I would give anything to be able to go into it and watch it on a lit night. That's one thing I could wish I could do with my life is, like, go back into and be a fly on the wall in that space like in the 90s or 80s and see it at its like fullest potential because I could only imagine being like a mecca of the south when queer wasn't fucking cool right because there's a lot more boiling to the surface with the art then right yeah Yeah. it's like it's more of like uh, there was a point where you had to have like a piece of male clothing on is that true in order to be on stage yeah you have to have a piece of male clothing. Was that like a city ordinance or a state thing or I think it was like more of like a common law 
I'm not for sure about the real. I should know my history like that, but I don't. I'm sorry. Well, that's something even I didn't know. So yeah, like already... you have to have a piece of male clothing in order to be on stage. When they originally, like, I think, like Charlie Brown and like um, them all started. Yeah. Wild. Uh, all right. Well, fast forwarding to you from <laughs> from the uh, theatrical beginnings to you know the the ratchet bikini. Um, <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about the evolution of your persona, because you had suggested to me when we were talking before the show that bitch sort of went through a couple different iterations. Right. So um, first off, I started off being ratchet. She's like, she looked great from behind because my ass is great. And then when you got to the face, you're like, damn, butterface, complete down. Like, do not look at her. She's got a brick of a face. You can't help her. I was doing like real kabuki theater shit. I was like blue garage doors with a fucking thick ass black brow or like a unibrow. And I just like, I didn't care about the makeup because to me it was all about the character. Right. And that's what House of Gun really embraced was like the character of everybody. So when I, um, I got to be in my senior year and I was kind of like fed up with like being in Savannah and I knew I needed to be in a better platform, be around more queers. And they were like, I got an offer to move into with one of the queens in Atlanta. So I asked my professors if I could do my senior thesis on drag, and they're like, fucking do it, dude. Right. So I went to Atlanta, and I um, started doing performances there, and slowly but surely I was getting beat down because my mug wasn't good. Right. Because my drag, like, it was like, it was like we get you can do this note, but can you do other notes? And I, I got really fed. I was like, you know, I would take certain things. I was very stubborn, very fucking stubborn. Everybody knows this about me. And then I... Slowly but surely, we'd like incorporate things subliminally. And then finally, I got to a point where I was on a show and I was like kind of being like blackballed into like changing what the fuck I did. So I was like, fuck you. I'm not only I'm gonna be pretty, I'm gonna be the hottest bitch in this fucking room. And I'm gonna be so damn pussy, I could walk through a fucking mall, eat my asshole. Cause I got tired of it. Right. I got so tired. I was like, bitch, and I'm gonna prove you wrong. I'm gonna prove you dead ass wrong. So then I started like, and then I started to enjoy it, like right. being more feminine, like toning that energy, like, you know, like, I can be a demon, not demonic witch, but I could be also a fuckable demonic witch. I don't see why you can't be. Right, 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 right. And that's when I kind of combined, you know, like the ratchetness and the prettiness and like kind of put it together and being like, you know, I could be the video game vixen I was playing when I was playing those video games. I could be like, you know, that crazy bitch in Castlevania with a fucking like sexy ass body and a fucked up face. You know, like I right. could be those things. And I was like, okay, that kind of cool. And I started like, you know, pushing her in that kind of direction. And um, that kind of led me to kind of being really successful and versatile as a queen, especially on Dragula, because I could pull from both spectrums and kind of mash them together. And of course, it seems like that combination of versatility and talent and your ability to kind of make the witch Mm -hmm. be both scary and pretty is sort of what led to that trajectory of Dragula, which is one of the things that, you know, Brings us here today to talk about this cross section of horror and and your drag identity, which mm-hmm. perfectly gets encapsulated in the show. But before we take the leap into the world of the Boulet Brothers, <laughs> I heard that literally before the show, before you were cast, there was a moment where you almost quit drag. Is that true? I there was. I, I got a job at Cartoon Network. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I started, uh, I was working on the marketing team and, you know, like I, I realized like this could be the route. This could be another route I could take. It was a door. Yeah. But I, you know, now I kept like, I kept the shows I had going and then 
I just kept getting more opportunities with drag and I, I liked the cubicle life. It was fun. Right. But I loved like, I loved being a queen. I loved, you know, performing. I loved being on a mic and talking and like getting to know the people and getting to know like, you know, you're, they vent to you because it's like they they have this fucked up week and you're that escape to go to. Right. They pay that $5 to be escaping into whatever the fuck you're providing that night. Right. And that like a general in Russian, that addiction is like, I couldn't, like, I couldn't give it up, but I really like, you know, I was like, you know what? Like it's getting kind of towards, you know, I kept trying and trying and trying and I, I wanted to. Right. And it was mostly not because of like, I didn't have fun with it, but mostly because how the business is run. Yeah. And, um, and Atlanta is like a, such a great mecca of drag, but also it has its own hindrances. But right now, especially right now, the, the two clubs have closed down and they're kind of like in a resurgence and all the queens are kind of getting together. It's almost like a union. Okay. So now they're like going to, you know, better wages and stuff like that. And like, you know, more respect for performers. And I think that's something that really queens should take advantage, like, you know, should push forward. Do you think there will be a drag union at some point? Would it hurt? I don't think it would hurt. I don't think it would hurt. Because with the visibility of things like Dragula and RuPaul's Drag Race and seeing like these tours uh-huh. and the bookings, yeah. it kind of feels like in any other aspect of entertainment where it's it's coming in some way. But then again, it's also entertainment. So there's another girl in the lineup who'll do it for $5 cheaper. That's true. You know. Before we move on, you mentioned Cartoon Network. I always love a brief aside question. Do you have a favorite Cartoon Network show? Steven Universe. Hands down. I think it's the most important thing on television right now. It's one of it, the queerest things. It's on one of the queer, right it's, now, yeah. it, but it's queer, but it's not like we're fucking queer. You know, like it's <laughs> it's it's something that's just it's there, right. and it's the way the information is just presented to you, it's just acceptable. I think it's like the best teaching mechanism that I think. I don't know. I wish I fucking had seen that shit as a 10 year old. Oh, for sure. Shout out to Rebecca Sugar, creator of Steven Universe, for bringing representation. Girl. Uh, all right, so let's talk about Dragula. Mm. I know that listeners are probably have been like, get to it, Michael. Jesus. Um, tell me about getting the call to be on the show that is the cross-section of horror and drag and filth and glamour. Uh, created by the Boulets, who, you know, they're underground icons. But what was that like, knowing that you got cast? I saw season one, and I saw them let these girls be themselves to the fullest extent. Like, you know, you got to see all the fucked up shit in their closet and it was embraced and it wasn't like, no, that's not wrong. It's like, do more. Right. And I was like, fuck, I want that. That's where I belong. It's not the other thing. This is, this is, this is the fucking ticket I want. Right. So when I got the call, honestly, I was like a fucking grade eight hoarder. Mm -hmm. So I was like, damn, I have to get my shit together. And a way I did that was, I was like, well, I got the call and I'm kind of like, you know, Max out my stuff in Atlanta, so my lease is up on my apartment. So I threw out whatever didn't fit in my fucking house and or whatever didn't fit in my car, and I drove across country. And I was like approaching it as like a life cleanse almost, you know. I, I listened to um, Dune on audiobook on the way there. <laughs> yeah, I saw on your Instagram that you had been re- uh, listening to Dune. What's funny is when I was in seventh grade, I was always into like horror and like outlandish kind of things and I had an art teacher that was like do you want to read something that's both like outsider otherness but has something to say here's a book you should read it and it was Dune and I uh, I'll let you tell the story because I just read this on Instagram and I think it's really interesting is 
you said that while you were listening to Dune, it kind of was a revelation to you. Yeah, especially approaching like this apex of like what I thought my career would be. You know, I know there's going to be more, but it's just like this is this competition that you like you've 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 watched previous competitions and you want to fucking do it right. and you don't want to inhibit yourself and you want to don't want to do all these things and it's that quote about fear i must not fear you know you you, you should look at the fear i'm gonna stare it straight in the eyes i'm gonna push it past it. i'm gonna look through it because that's the only thing is in my way is myself and i almost forgot that on the show like right. i got there and i saw everybody else and i was like well shit i'm not scary like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a fun party girl. Like, I'm not like, I'm not going to be like, this is fucking horror. You know, right. like, I wasn't that girl. And I thought that's what they were looking for. Right. And then when I kind of, like, snapped out of that is when, like, I was like, shit, no, I, I'm in my own way. That idea is fucking me up. Right. It's not that. It's just that one single idea. And when I looked past that, it was great. I think the thing that no one ever talks about when looking at the competition, although they're different competitions, I think the one thing that uh, Drag Race and Dragula have in common is not only are you competing with other people, mm. but what a lot of times I think the queens on the show don't realize is you're kind of competing with yourself, too. Yeah, no, you're 100,000%. And it's, it's like, you know, you watch them and you like, you watch competitions, like, you know, any competition show and you're like, oh, oh, you're, they're in your head. Like, oh, oh, it's like, but you're like, girl, you're sequestered. You're not near your friends and family. You don't have a fucking phone. You know what I mean? Like you don't have the ability to snap out of it. Right. So, um, you kind of have to like really know yourself and really, really kind of almost have like a really good group pep talk with your best friends and be like. You know, they need to tell you over and over, no, bitch, you're going to fucking win. You're right. going to kick ass. You're going to bring it. You're going to do this shit. Because in the bleakest moment, you're going to go back to those conversations and really kind of build yourself up and prep yourself for this kind of like environment. Right. Because it's like eight other bitches with like flamethrowers and chainsaws trying to fucking kill you for that spot. You know and what I mean? And in that show, it's true. Yeah. And they yeah. don't give any fucks. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like they make you, you beat each other up. <laughs> And uh, I think it would be fair to say, watching the show, early on you, ha you had a little bit of a struggle. Yeah, definitely. And then you recovered. Do you, was there a moment in the competition where you felt yourself get the traction back? Were you like, yes, this is the moment? It was the second I found out this next challenge is the rock and roll challenge. Okay. Because honestly, my least favorite challenge when we got, we kind of get a gist of what we're going to do or when they assigned it. I'm like, oh, okay, fuck, that's the one I wasn't excited for. And that was Ghost Town. Like, I was right. not, I, I, I was, like, so conceptual about it. I thought that she was going to be this, like, I thought there was going to be a moment to explain what we were. But right. I realized, like, you know, you need to be instantly recognizable. It needs to be that, like, it needs, it's film. It needs to be quick, short, right. to the point, done. You need to look at it and completely get it. Right. So when I got that note and I survived the next week, I was like, okay, I got this. And I found it was a rock and I was able to really like bond with the team and shit. And I'm actually excited. We're actually taking it on tour next weekend. Wow. Yeah. So PMS, that whole performance is going to be on tour. Um, so probably when this airs, it'll probably be over. But I'm really excited like to do it again and be reunited with like Dolly, Erica and Disasterina because I just feel like we, we met together and we all kind of had frustrations about like different things. And we kind of like I was like, well, let's address like what do we want to do? Like, you know, what do you want to do with this performance? And a lot of people, I just compiled that together in a blender and we just shitted on things. That's, that's fair. I, I like that, you know, your strengths and that was the moment you're like, this is where I turn it around because the show is committed to the world of horror and horror movies and the cross section of queer identity. One of my favorite challenges that I think you kick total ass on 
was I, I think it was the Scream Queen challenge where, yeah. You, yeah, where they had you go out to a cabin in the woods, which is always my jam. And you all were given. Did you write your own scripts, too? Yes. OK, so you wrote scripts where you portrayed basically 80s horror women uh-huh. and you're killed <laughs> and yours had such a great like it felt like. A cut scene from a Friday the 13th mm-hmm. and um, what was it like I just need to know about that challenge because to me that's like in a way definitive what Dead for Filth is about you took this queerness you brought horror to it but you brought yourself to it too it was like all of the cross-section of identity and horror and queerdom uh, were, are you a fan of 80s horror movies is that your I love 80s anything 80s and trashy and like just the neonness of it. I do like 80s horror movies. Um, was Children of the Corn 80s? It was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Children of the Corn was like actually one of my very first film movies I ever watched. And uh, he wants you too, Malachi. Like that whole line, <laughs> I was just like, ooh, daddy. Like my butthole puckered a little bit. Even as like a little boy, I was like, damn, okay. Um, but yeah, I, that challenge was, I just really wanted to play a really because at that point, I didn't really get to show the thoughtiness that bitch is. Like, she's a fucking whore. Right. At that point, James was getting the whore edit. And I was like, no, bitch. Like, girl, let me sit down, girl. Like, I got this. <laughs> so I really wanted to showcase that dumb slut. You know, like, that really bad B-movie whore. Like, it's probably, they. she just shot a porn and she went to the set to film this. You know right. what I mean? Like, like <laughs> that's, like, what I wanted. Like, completely bad. Um, I gave her like a really shitty route. My butt was completely out. Like I wanted it to be like a really bad B movie. Right. Cause like, you know, I knew like, <laughs> cause that's why I love the boulets cause they get camp. Right. And you know, some Queens these days don't even know what camp is. Well, and I think what's really smart about your performance in it, and in, in a lot of people don't understand this, but to affect bad acting, I mean, there are people who are naturally bad actors, right. but to intentionally act poorly actually requires very skillful acting. It does. And so it's kind of genius that you knew how to execute this character because that it read like it, like some of some other performers and I, you know, not here to name names. It's just like, they were very wooden because they don't act. Or they're not, you know, like my education, like we were in like, acting for the camera classes and shit mm-hmm. like that. Like I had a background in that and you yeah. know, like I got to work out all that random shit. So you have some people who've never been in front of a camera before. Right. And you know, they kind of think like, you know, it that com- like just being comfortable with a camera is something that's really useful in a competition yeah. setting like that where you're. So I have to ask because that challenge is one of my favorite challenges is about, uh, the fact that, um, you're paying homage to eighties horror movies. Do you have a woman from 80s horror that is a favorite of yours? Like, who would be your 80s lady horror icon? It's so hard to pick from. I know. Who are some of your favorites? I mean, I, of course, like, uh, I love Amy Steele from Friday the 13th Part 2, Adrian King from Friday the 13th. I'm a Friday the 13th stan. Uh, I love uh, Jamie Lee, of course. Uh, Barbara Crampton from Reanimator. I say Jamie Lee. Jamie Lee's an undisputed icon. Fuck, dude, like... It just that fear in her eyes in every shot, you know, it's just like, yeah, like even when it's like stagnant, she really was able to take a beat and build it. You know, I think the true I mean, horror more than any genre, all acting like acting 
and reacting are so crucial to any scene. Yeah. But horror more than anything, it, reaction. That's your yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. have to you have to be really good with your and most of the time you're working off like a fucking zombie or something with no emotion yeah. or like you know there's just like a stagnant tall figure right and you have to like flush out every single beat that's happening within it okay so you mentioned uh the edit and how you know up until that point you weren't getting the horror edit or whatever uh and as we know, anybody who lives in 2018 and has seen reality TV should know that these shows are edited and given story shaping. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, still most of what you see is is what happened, but like you still have to create an identify uh, an hour of TV, mm. which means there are things left on the cutting room floor. Right. Are there any moments specifically for you that we didn't see that you wish we had? Yeah. Um, there's this conversation that came about, and I understand why it wasn't in there, because, you know, like, you know, Dragula is on cable, and we have to, like, you know, kids are going to watch, even though it's, like, not meant for kids. Kids are a huge fan of the show. Like, most of my fans are, like, from the UK, and they're 11, or, like, you know, they're teenagers, and, like, you know, we have to be cautious of that. Um, but one thing I really wish had kind of made it was the rock challenge in the boudoir, where we kind of all collectively talked about drug use in the queer culture. And uh, for the South, especially I mentioned earlier, you know, like you're from Alabama, you get kicked out of your house, you get a job at Starbucks or whatever. And you kind of like have a friend. He takes you out. He introduces you to a gentleman. Next thing you know, you're doing blow in the bathroom. Right. And you don't have necessarily, you know, either the education or something like, you know, everything's great in moderation. If you're going to party, party. But when it starts to become a constant thing and I see like a fresh boy who comes onto the scene and then like three months later, I don't even recognize him because of whatever he's using. It really hurts. It, it, you know, like I'm almost like a mother in the community. Uh-huh. I, 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 mean, you're a mother figure or, you know, like a womanly figure. You're, you're that parent that they necessarily didn't have. Right. So it really, that it was a great conversation. I, I get why it was cut. But like for me, I just wish you know, that was one sound by I left. You know, it was like if I could go home next week, if that little bit made it. Because, you know, like everything's great in moderation. But I just would see these kids that completely like come into the club and get into this rut and they don't have necessarily a resource to get out of it. Right. And they go into it so early and what the things that they get involved with are so addictive and it's easy to escape in those things. You know, it, right. it's an instant, instant escape and it's, they don't realize that they think it's going to be a long-term like solution, but it's really just a bandaid over the wound that you really need to talk about, whatever that wound might be. And right. I kind of wish, you know, and I, I feel like it's a huge thing in the queer community right now. Right, I'm sure because the nature of, of a, a drag queen is you frequently are at clubs and part of the nightlife. Yeah. You see these things maybe even more than other queer people do right. who can willfully ignore it because they're not out. And Because I think you, I, I liked what you said about uh, queens taking a maternal role in the community. Mm-hmm. Because I think for a lot of youth who don't, have a place to go. Right. They end up when they're like, maybe if they're kicked out of their homes or whatever, they end up going to queer spaces. Right. And, you know, of course, queer spaces are safe spaces and they're dedicated safe spaces, but there's no such thing really as a safe space. But that's though. true. There's no such thing as a safe space in the way that it's still nightlife. And you're talking about people who are going out with sexual appetites 
with substance appetites. And it's easy to be like, you know, like a random Joe Schmo from a small town who doesn't have like any kind of education about what to look out for or like, you know, I'll try this. It won't bother you. You know, like, you know, you have an older gentleman that's like buying you dinner the whole night and buying you the drinks. And you're like, oh, this is great. This is the best experience I've ever had in my life. And he's like, oh, I I should trust him. He wants me to do this or he slips something in a drink that you don't know. And it's just like, you know, it. She's like these little lambs of the slaughter almost in right. a weird kind of way. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's well, cause it's important to have these conversations because that's how we become educated. Right. And I think just talking about it, you know, as I said before, like if you're going to do something, do it in moderation. You know, right. like, you know, just you should. I, I don't know. I just my heart just goes out to those kids because mm-hmm. they really are kids, even though they might be 18 or 20 or 20, whatever the hell. But, you know, they, they're definitely our children. You know, well, I think that's a m- much more insightful and and uh, engaging answer about what was edited out. And I'm glad we talked about it because you could have easily been like, "Oh, during this one performance, I like I was so like, great, and it never <laughs> got shown." Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's that's interesting. I'm glad you shared that. I really Thanks. am. Uh, Thank you for letting me share it. Well, it's important. I think it's an important discussion to have. Uh, one thing I, I do think about Dragula that is both horrifying and engaging at the same time it's one of the things that everybody kind of likes because we can't fucking believe it are those extermination challenges oh fuck and spoiler alert listeners you know i know that some of you have been asking i'll just reveal it here on the show in a couple weeks the boules themselves are stopping Ah! by and we can also get into this with them but the Boulay brothers craft these horrifying things that they have you do when you're in the bottom of the show and it's not like lip syncing for your life no, it's like it's like fighting for your goddamn life. yeah and then some of the some of the ones just off the top of my head there was the lancing one where they did the the piercings with the, oh yeah they did piercings in the first episode right piercings with like long metal spikes tattoos the standing in ice uh they had to beat each other in the thunderdome that was fun <laughs> it's so savage it was uh, like I'm playing a fighting game. I was like, I was ready for this. You know? Were any of those extermination... Let me ask you this. Were there extermination challenges that you saw watching the show that like, maybe you weren't involved in that you were like, I couldn't have made it through that one? Okay. Um, the tattoo. Yeah? I don't have any tattoos. I know like, I won Dragula and I should be this punk rock bitch, but I kind of... I mean, I... I would like a tattoo, but in that moment, I know what I would... If Especially going against the person that was... If I had been in that situation, I would have committed, so I would have gotten a tramp stamp. <laughs> and I would have to live with that tramp stamp. You know, I would right. have been like, this is it, girl. Like, you know, like, that's the ticket. You know, like, I would I would have had to make the choice. I would have bucked up and made the choice, but in the moment, I would have been like, fuck, this is one thing that's permanent. You know, like, yeah. it's a permanent branding, and you have to make a choice. Those about- piercings are going to leave scars on some of those girls, The though. piercing, I, I kind of, like, you know, that's such a huge thing with Hellraiser. Yeah. So I was like, ah, oh, I feel like, I thought they were actually going to hook them and suspend them for, like, you know, do suspension. I thought that's what they were going to do, but then, like, I found out they did a piercing, I was like, oh, okay, that's still fucking intense. The only way I would have gotten through that mentally, I would have gone to a different place and played like a character who really like got off on it. Yeah. Like, oh, fuck yeah. Like, I would just have been like, oh, yeah, go deeper. Like, I would have had to really escape into something mentally because that right. shit fucking drives me up the wall. Um, one thing that I hope they do next season that I would have been terrified for is uh, heights. Yeah? Yeah. Like, if they had to meet, like, bungee jump into a gorge or some shit, I would have, like, lost my shit. 
like completely or like climb a rock wall. I, I'm fucking can't with heights. I can't. Um, but yeah, and, uh, the exterminations I think are such a really great aspect of the show because you know, like as queers, we go through fucking hell right and you know it might not be being pierced it might not be being tattooed but it's some of it's like some really mentally fucked up shit right and it's kind of like that you know i think it with the viewer uh being a younger viewer if i was watching the show i'd be like fuck if they went through being pierced and they came out the other side like i can do fucking anything right so you view it as a physical representation of some of the things that queers deal with anyway yeah that's interesting yeah yeah of all the ones that they did on the show, and it, like, you know, despite the stabbing of the piercings, the blah, 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 the one that I don't think I could do is standing in ice for a half hour. Because on paper, you're like, oh, I got that. But like, no. And 20 minutes in, you're like, fuck this. I don't know how they made it four minutes in. Watching that, to me, like, watching it at home, I was like, oh my God. Because if you've ever been anywhere, uh, and I'm sure listeners in the Midwest, anyone who's lived anywhere where it gets like sub-zero temperatures. I remember when I was going to college in Ohio, we'd go, it would get like 20 degrees below. Uh-huh. And just walking from like my dorm to the building I was in, you'd feel your face start cracking. Or if your hair was wet out of the shower, it'd start freezing. Yeah, cold is nothing to mess around with. Uh, I thought it was the best chat. Like I, I realized that was so funny because it's cold feet because it was the wedding challenge. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Swan they and got cold feet. I was like, again. oh, yep. damn. All uh, right. So from exterminations to things that were edited out to all of the, the scream queening, you made it through. And uh, I was lucky enough to be at the party uh, you were at when you found out you won. It was, yeah. That's where we met. That is where we met. We met the night you won Dragula. Were you prepared for that at all? I accepted losing mm-hmm. before I could accept the win mentally because like because, you know, you're top three for a minute. Right. And the world has to kind of find out. And like it was kind of really cool to watch people be like, oh, like have 10 fans. And then I at the end of it, they were like on this journey with me and they were like all team bitches near the end. Right. Or like, you know, I had a significant more amount of people and I was like, fuck, this is kind of cool. But like, you know, in the beginning, I was like, I'm top three. But it was like, everyone's like, she sucks. She's going home. And I'm like, <laughs> bitch, I do a comeback. Just wait, you know. Um, it. I, I just had to accept the loss because, you know, I just I had to. Mentally, right. I just had to be like, okay, it doesn't happen. But, you know, that doesn't change. You know, I'm an artist. I, I, I can make more shit. You know, this is a great platform. People know my name now and stuff like that. So when it came down to it. It was also one of the things like, you know, we had direct feedback about negatives and positives for each challenge. But that one, when they were like, we liked this, and there was this crickets, you know, like, so you kind of like didn't know really how you did. And you and that day competing against, you know, James and Victoria, they kicked fucking ass. Yeah. You know, like I, I, I left that day. I was like, I'm glad I'm not the blaze and don't have to make this decision at all. Like everyone brought so much dope shit. Um. Yeah, uh, they just brought so much fucking awesomeness right to the stage, and I just was like, "Fuck!" Like we did that. We definitely changed the face of the drag. Like I can't. I was like, "I fuck, girl." Like good luck season three. You know, I'm excited to watch season three, but like you know, like I just we did that. Right. It was good. So you won. I mean, honestly, like you are America's newest drag super monster. Uh, it seems like you went on quite a journey uh, and had some fierce competition along the way. Uh, so what's it like now? You're on tour. Is that how that works? We're going on tour. And that's around the country? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. No, no, no. It's uh, the first leg is California. Other ah. dates are to be announced, but I'm like. I'm headed to Chicago, which is some, a venue like I've always wanted to perform at. I'm beginning, and I'm gonna be at Nightgown soon. Right. So like, I, I just think it's it's like my like everything went from black and white to like really private and color, and I can't thank the boys enough. I mean, I, I think it would have happened anyway if I didn't win. But right. like, you know, it's just the fact that like, you know, I've always been number two. Mm-hmm. I did this huge competition in Atlanta where like I did the competition twice and I got second twice. Right. Where they were like, oh, losing by a half a point again. It's bitch putting. You know, like I was like, you know, I was like, okay, I'm always number two. So it's that right. shift of being like the vice president or the assistant to actually being the main role. And I, 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 I'm like, this is great. It's like being a golden retriever and finally catching like the mail truck. <laughs> I got the mail truck. I love that. <laughs> well, you are proof positive that you can rise out of the dark and truly become queen of the monsters. Right. Yeah. So I have to ask you just one Dragula. You're about to go on tour to meet all your loyal subjects of the night. Uh, all the bears that I can't wait to fuck. <laughs> what's next? What What's your goal afterward? What's What's in the future for Bitch Putin? I want to make her that Power Ranger supervillain that I always like loved watching. So I want to make her like, you know, always looking like, damn, she just jumped off this TV in the 90s being like this badass fucking bitch. Was Rita Repulsa the first kind of drag character a lot of kids ever saw? I mean, I just know she's a bio queen. She's like, like, after 10,000 years, I'm free. Like, it's <laughs> like, oh, like she's like larger than life. And she's like serving this fucking character. And you're like, yeah. of course, she's from outer space. And Lord Zed is like totally a daddy. Like that whole fucking shit is definitely like <laughs> totally like why I was there every I watched every season up until Power Rangers in space. You heard it here first that Lord Zed space daddy. Mm. Uh, my favorite Power Rangers villain, I don't know why I'm just gonna dig into this, was that like when you could see the writer's room just giving up for the week. Oh, because, down. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. I'd be like, what coffee is the villain or like whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I always like, there's one specifically, and this was a real monster on the show, but I imagine the writers were sitting around and it's just like, they were like, all right, Steve, what do we got? And they're like, I don't know. Maybe he's a, a turtle, but he's got a stoplight in his back. And when the light goes red, uh, they stop. And someone's like, genius. Throw Done. It on. Here we go. And that's a real Power Rangers monster. That's a real Power Rangers monster. Yeah. Like, fuck yeah. And then, like, Sailor Moon, too, man. Like, Queen Barrel. Queen Barrel is where it's at. It's fucking queen. Yeah. Uh, like, it's their color palette, like, her regalness. She's, like, talking to Jedi. Like, you know, she's always, she has this, like, otherworldly badass bitch mentality. I'm about to call out a previous guest, but uh, our our guests on the Christmas special are these two comedians, the enemies of Dorothy, and Chris, who is uh, part of that group, has just started watching Sailor Moon. And like he, the original or like the Sailor original. Moon Crystal? He like started at the beginning. And he has been like texting me like frequently. He's like, Wait, did you know this? Tuxedo mask, X, Y. And I'm like, it's, cr- it's, I'm living for the texts. Like, I haven't been rewatching it myself, but I'm just loving watching it. Yeah, he's through. like yeah. losing his fucking shit. <laughs> yeah. Do you know why, like, they, they never f- aired the final season? Oh, why did they air the final season? Um, they never aired the high final season because there was these, like, uh, sailor stars. And they would kind of do, like, a gender switch. Oh, yeah. So they could never really explain, because, like, in the American version, like, uh, Sailor uh, Uranus was just, like, they were, like, in... Not, I think Sarah, it's Pluto. Sailor Uranus and Neptune. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sailor uh, Uranus and Neptune were, like, lovers in Japan, but here they were, like, cousins. And yeah. they had, like, edit, like, all the fucking love scenes they had and shit. Um, but, like, yeah, they couldn't, like, figure it out how in America they would, like, 
make sense of it. And it was a huge plot point. So they're like, we're just not going to even air it. I see my producer's holding it. We're talking about queer cartoon characters, and uh, he's men- making mention of him from the Powerpuff Girls. Do you yes, remember him? Girls. <laughs> yes. Him is uh, him to me is truly a Dragula competitor for sure. Oh fuck yes! Yeah. Oh my god. So like, here's the thing about him. Uh, I was in the room because I was like, when I was brought on to Cartoon Network, I was like involved with the reboot. You know, the, the oh, Powerpuff right. yeah, Girls yeah. reboot. And they were like showing us the trailer. It's like the first time I think they, they just got off the editing room floor. I was like a random T3. And I was like, okay, I'm a fly on the wall. Yeah. And they showed the trailer. Everyone's kind of quiet. And then him came on and I lost my shit. <laughs> I was like, that is honestly one of the very first queer fucking cunt bitches that I've ever seen on TV. And he was just like, yeah, like he was taking a bubble bath, just drama. The bubble bath. Drama the first for time no you reason. ever see him in, is in a bubble bath where he like raises this high-heeled shoe. And uh, it, that character could not have not been influenced by Frankenfurter in some way. No, no, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Like, there had to be some fucking devilish, deviant queen that that, that per- writer came across. That, like, dude, like, fuck yeah. For sure. And Fuzzy Lumpkins was definitely like a bear. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like a um, pot-smoking bear with a banjo. And it sort of brings it back full circle to your mention of Steven Universe. Like, these things that were coded in shows then. Like, yeah. we know that him is, like, a genderqueer character. Right. We know that Fuzzy Lumpkins is probably a bear in some com- com- fashion. But, like, what's cool about Steven Universe is they sort of can do it. They're mm-hmm. like, well, Peridot and Jazz, making up names, picking stones. Peridot and Garnet, they're lesbian lovers. And cartoons, they're not. But you know what I mean. Right. Uh, If they did it, I wouldn't be shocked. (sighs) This has been another tangent brought to you by me and my guest. As we uh, wait, where are we? Yeah, exactly. Well, speak. We're we're almost to the end. So as we about to head off into the night, uh, I like to ask every guest because we are inspired by. Film and, and spookiness. Uh, have you seen any movies lately that have inspired you, or are there any horror movies that you just particularly love that you want to recommend to your fans? There's this one that was on Netflix for a while. It's called The Kill List, and it was a it's a it's a UK movie. It's a British movie. Was Simon Pegg in that? I think so. Yeah, I think that recall. I recall. I'm not the best with names. I can't spell. If you haven't noticed, um, <laughs> so it's really. Like, you're watching it, and it's, like, this weird, like, he's, like, a robber, bounty hunter, whatever, and he's, like, killing all these motherfucking people, and at the end, like, there's this fucking kick-ass scene. I'm kind of spoiling it, but whatever. But, like, he's, like, running from these people, and he's getting caught, like, he, he gets caught up in the weird shit, and he's, like, at this castle, and he's, like, running out into the woods, he's, like, what the fuck is going on? And you think, like, it's just, like, these, like, random people going to come kill him, but, like, they come out, and there's this, like, droning, with sound design, this is droning drum. Right. And you just see these people come out with these hay masks. And it, from production design standpoint, it's a simple fucking choice. Yeah. But and it's, they're just holding like fire and shit. It's like this cult shit. Right. And the mind fuck in that moment as a viewer, you're like, he's not going to escape. There's no way. Right. And he just like, you know, and then he realizes like he's fighting somebody. And then he realizes like they reveal the mask after killing it. And it's his wife. It's like it's just the layers, this layers of mind fuck to it, and that that to me, I I guess answer the question. The first very first question was like of why horror, is that I love the general visceral mind fuck horror provides, like I'm, leaving leaving the viewer being like shit. Like you thought it was gonna be one thing, but it's that swift, quick jab to the other side that like you weren't expecting, 
And it's that, that fuck. I just love a good mind fuck. And you know what? I love that you brought the whole show around back to the first question. I'm a big fan of cyclical things. I like, I like a full circle moment. And I guess that's really where I came up with the finale look. You know, it was like that simple thing of like two laser eyes in the dark. Oh yeah, your laser eyes were great. Yeah, <laughs> I got to be the cyborg I've always wanted to be. But you know, it's just like that simple motif of like, you know, seeing something when you first wake up and being like, oh shit, I'm probably not going to get out of this. The joy of horror is it's both com- insanely complicated and horrifyingly simple. Mm. Bitch, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on the YouTubes. I'm launching a channel. Yeah? I kind of have a channel with like some random videos coming up, but I have uh, I have a couple shows in the works that I can't necessarily talk about yet. Okay, oh, good. Um, uh, but it's going to be, uh, I'm coming with a lot of gaming content, uh, Let's Plays. I'm launching a Twitch channel. Um, so expect that probably in March. Cool. Uh, um, but yeah, uh, if you want to play me on PlayStation Network, it's Butch Puddin, B-U-Q-T-C-H, Puddin without the G. And then, uh, yeah, uh, I have a Twitter. That's that too. The first guest to ever drop a PlayStation handle. I'm here for it. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come and play with us today. Anytime. Please, listeners, now that bitch is out on the road, <laughs> raining over you all in the darkness, please go see her on her, her tour. I give great roadhead, just so you know. <laughs> what more can I say? <laughs> uh, thank you again. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night. And good luck. Dead for Filth has been a Reverie Studios production. The show is executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, produced by me, Michael Verratti, Dominic Segetti, and Drew Phillips. The sound engineers for this episode were Dominic Segetti and Drew Phillips. Music by My Own Cubic Stone, edited by Drew Phillips.